What is executive coaching? Is executive coaching overrated? Is it over or under prescribed? Hey guys, Bruce and I, the no-name CFOs, along with a very special guest, will answer those questions and more on CFO Bookshelf. Bruce Reed, the PracticeLink CFO, the first and the best CFO ever at PracticeLink. How's that for an intro? It is factually correct. Factually correct. Uh, would it be factually correct that you need an executive coach? I consider myself very coachable. So, you know, I, so I'm always, I am always open to somebody who's going to, um, who's going to observe, who's going to take in uh, what they know about how I go about my business. And I'm always going to have an open um, an open ear and open eyes to anything that I can learn. I also try to be somebody who looks in the mirror um, on a regular basis, um, figuratively. Um, I guess that's the right word. Yeah, to, because otherwise, some, <laughs> if you look in the mirror right now, you're going to say, man, that's a great beard. Yeah. <laughs> right. Rugged. He's a, a, a rugged no-name CFO. So, but I, I think it's important to look, to always be looking in the, in the mirror to say, well, you know, what could I be doing better? How is that coming across? Am I continuing to grow as a leader? Let's validate what you just said. I'm going to go through a list here and you're going to say yes or no. Do you have a tolerance for discomfort? Yes. Oh, wow. So we're one for seven. Number two, do you have openness to experimentation? Yes. Oh, that's two for seven. That's 0.286. Is that right? Uh, number three, ability to look beyond the rational. Ooh. Come on. We need to get to 0.429. The ability, but it's not my go-to. Uh, number four, willingness to take responsibility. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I know yes. that. Yeah. Uh, capacity for forgiveness. Yes. Uh, that's a, that's, that is, that has refined with age. And because I've discovered that the ability to forgive is more, is almost more important for me than it is for those, the person who's being forgiven. Because when you can forgive, you can move on until you're forgiven, you're stuck where you are. And that took some time to learn. Does that also include forgetting? You never forget. Ooh, forgiving and forgetting. <laughs> that one's yeah. a bonus. That was a bonus question. <laughs> All right. And the next one is uh, self-discipline. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good. And then the last question is, do you have the ability to ask for support? Yes. Um, it, again, like, um, I wouldn't say it's a go-to. I, I am a... Um, I am definitely somebody who relies upon myself first and foremost um, for for things that I need. I tend to be very self reliant, so the the go to is to be is to figure out you know figure out things on my own. So asking for help is not. I'd say if I had to if I had to if I was if I was rank ordering those, I'd say that would be pretty close to number seven. Very impressive. So we're going to say anywhere between five out of seven. Six out of seven. Why is this important? Because Brenda Steinberg, great article. We'll have this in the show notes. She wrote an article for HBR. I think it was the last week of October. It's called These Are the Leaders. Uh, no, she said, no, I, I take that back. It's Are You Coachable? Are You Coachable? Because in the article, I got ahead of myself. In the article, she says, or she asked, the, these are 
who are the leaders who evolve the most from coaching? And so that list of seven we just went through, if you're hitting all of those, you're going to, you're going to evolve. I mean, you are too, like you already mm-hmm. are. You've been for the last 10, 15 years right. as you, as you've continued to grow personally and professionally. So why are we talking about coaching today? I was wondering that myself. So we are going to be talking to Steve Mendelson. He is a executive coach and he's, he's, I don't want to say he's new in this space because he, he's really been exec, he's been doing executive coaching, coaching, uh, mentoring. Uh, I call it the world of encouraging, uh, building people up, taking people to a new level. He's been doing that in his career. So he had a long, rich career in corporate America. Uh, he's worked with uh, Thomson Reuters. And it's interesting because he knows some of the people that I used to, to do business with at Thompson Reuters uh, in their, in their ta- with their tax software, their accounting software, their auditing software. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a little bit of a, a reunion of sorts, even though I didn't know him, but we each knew some of the same people. But our podcast, CFO Bookshelf, is about lifelong learning and learning for life, right? Yep. So right. I was just thinking, I, I've always been interested in what does an executive coach do? Is it overrated or is it underrated? And then we're going to talk about a question that I purposely did not bring up with Steve. I'm going to save her for us to, I think you're going to like it. Oh, great. great. So, so anyway, that's why we're talking about these questions about coaching, executive coaching, because we're going to be talking to Steve Mendelson. Great. Well, it's uh, it sounds like an exciting topic and something that uh, the, uh, our listeners will enjoy. And I think we'll enjoy it too. So why don't you go ahead and roll the interview? So Steve Mendelson, just right out of the gate, what exactly is executive coaching? Well, that's a, uh, a good question, Mark. The, um, I guess the first thing to get clear on with that is, is what is context of coaching? And, and I just, it's, and a lot of people have different uh, views and perspectives on what coaching is. Coaching in this context is partnering with a client uh, in a thought provoking, creative process that inspires them to realize their personal or professional potential. So the keys of that is that. It is them, the ones who are the, the coaches, if you will, who know the answers. They know more about their subject matter than I do. They have to want to change something in order to overcome a challenge or to be better. And ultimately, they are going to have to do the hard work. My job as a coach is to lead them to understand and see and recognize their obstacles, especially self-imposed obstacles, and help them to achieve the clarity of vision as to how to overcome them. And then key is to have them commit to taking action on them. But the the process is really led by the person being coached. So with executive coaching, you're going to be focused on a lot of leadership issues. Um, but uh, the elements are the same, whether you're coaching a CEO or you're coaching someone who's just been transitioned into their first management job. And the most important thing, and this is particularly important at the executive level, is that you're their partner. You have no agenda other than to help them achieve their success. So that's really 
my view of what executive coaching is. It's taking a person who's probably strong and has achieved some success and unleashing them, unblocking them, uh, and, and giving them um, the, that kind of personal support. Steve, we met on the phone about a week or so ago. And as I started listening to you, I thought, oh, this guy is a prototypical executive coach. Just the way you spoke, the way you carried yourself. I, I mean, that, that moment of trust and respect was like, almost like instantaneously. But there's something fascinating about your background, because again, it's it's interesting. I started out. I went to college uh, at Syracuse University, and I was in the drama department as a major in acting. Really? That now my, that I did not know that. That kind of flamed out for me uh, in my first year when I realized that it just didn't. It wasn't somehow some some spark had died, and it wasn't uh, attracting my passion anymore. So the logical thing to transfer to was computer science. That logic wasn't clear to everybody, but um, it was a a nascent kind of industry at the time. Um, And so that was really my entry point into business was through uh, computer science. And uh, as I grew as a software guy, um, I won't go through the the whole step-by-step process, but I grew more as time went by into management um, and management informed uh, by my technology background. Um, But step by step, I found myself in a niche, which was all about taxes. Uh, I started with uh, founding, co-founding a business uh, with a client we knew um, to do fiduciary tax processing for banks, law firms, whoever the fiduciary is doing trust and estate uh, tax work, 1041s and, and attendant uh, forms and schedules and so on. So that became kind of an unintended specialty for me. And little by little, I grew and knew more about taxes than I did about computers because computers were changing even faster than taxes uh, and probably still are. Um, but um, I kind of uh, rose in that business uh, I was in one job for about three different companies as it kept getting acquired by bigger and bigger companies, spent some time at a big four company, which at that time was a big six company, Bryce Waterhouse, and then ended up uh, in the Thomson Corporation, which became Thomson Reuters. And uh, over time, uh, I was responsible for larger and larger enterprises within there um, and eventually led a uh, um, you know, almost half billion dollar um, book of business um, in the full P and L across did, sales. Did you marketing. say? Did you say the B word billion? Well, yeah, but I did say the fraction ahead <laughs> of it. But, still uh, a big. That's still a big. It was a number. big business. Yes, and it was. Uh, um, it was uh, um, you know, and it's about twelve hundred people globally. Uh, sales, editorial, technological, marketing, finance. Um, uh, and all of that. Uh, and it was great. I, I loved it um, and did it for a number of years up till really I was kind of retired out of there. Um, and as I, you know, you get to an age where you start looking in the mirror and saying, what do I love about this? What's my purpose? What am I here for? I realized that what I enjoyed most was having people look at me as a leader, 
and it wasn't because of the power that I had over them. That wasn't a turn on to me. But the fact that uh, I, I'm going to say power now, but it was up to me um, to give them direction. It was up to me, essentially, to, you know, to put food on their table and indirectly. And that was a kind of a responsibility. And it was thrilling uh, to have that. Um, a part of that was more personal where I would deal with people and I became very popular and sought after as someone that people could come to with questions, with problems, with, um, um, challenges or just at crossroads. And so I was really the, the part that I drew the most joy from in that job was helping people one by one and leading people as a, as a group. I love to get up and do town halls and, and learned a lot about, have to tell the truth, uh, you know, through those experiences. So when I was trying to um, strategize what to do when I was no longer um, at this big company, uh, I, I couldn't imagine regenerating the passion and energy to drive another big um, P&L, not that anyone was offering me one, but, um, and so I, I decided that, um I would pursue coaching on an individual basis and take uh, take what I was enjoying so much and still feel at this point in my life that I was having an influence, that I had a footprint, that I had a purpose uh, that really made me think that I was doing something of value for other people that was really rewarding and fun for me. So that's how I got into the, into the whole idea of coaching. Uh, I got some formal training, some certification to back that up so that I learned some real techniques and so that I could be more credible walking into the door of someone and explaining why I should be coaching. That was transformational for me just to, to learn uh, some of the techniques and ins and outs. So then I felt I had a real arsenal between the training I had just had, my basic proclivity for that, and my experience in an executive suite Um that I thought made really a potent uh, combination to uh, to credibly and successfully um, coach people up and down the, the management chain. The world of executive coaching fascinates me, uh, using that word again. I, mm-hmm. I've always have wanted to interview someone who is in this space. We just had on Paul Downs a few weeks ago. He's mm-hmm. written the book, uh, Boss Live, great book. He wrote for the New York Times, a column for a couple of years. And he he just says, Mark, you've got to get coaching. I and mean, he's saying that to other uh, entrepreneurs who are, are maybe struggling. And and he that's a message for him. Get help. And he's gotten help and still getting help. My frustration though with some coaching, Steve, and, and push back if if you disagree. But one of my concerns, as as we've seen coaching just explode in the last maybe dozen or so years, I see some people using kind of a, well, here's my checklist, and yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna tick this off, tick this off, you know, go through my structure, my framework. That's my frustration. Where it's to me, I would think that every coaching situation is going to be different, it's going to be unique. So. What's your thought process? I mean, do you truly approach every client differently? I, I don't know. Uh, this will sound obnoxious, but I don't know how not to do that. Um, to, to me, the whole coaching engagement starts with 
asking the, the coachee, what is it you're trying to achieve? What are you struggling with? What do you want to work on? And, you know, within a, a coaching session, we can go more into the into the process, but within a coaching session, the expression that I learned in my certification program was dance in the moment. Uh, the whole idea is to bring curiosity uh, about the, 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 the um, coachee's um, challenges and to do your active listening so you're really picking up the cues of what's important and not important to the person and ask powerful questions. But once you've asked the first powerful question, the next powerful question's got to be based on the answer you found to the first one. Uh, and if you're going to be worth anything in the process, it's very personal. Uh, um, and that's, I, that's the other thing that's exciting to me about it is that it is personal and I don't think it's inappropriate, but it becomes intimate um, because if you're doing it well, if you're having a successful coaching relationship, you as the coach have established a safe environment. You, you have done what you can do to earn the trust of the person that you're coaching. And if you haven't done that initial work to, to establish an environment of trust, you're not going to get very far with the coaching. You might get to a question and answer and you can give a recommendation. But as far as the person being coached really reaching a moment of transformation of a moment or a moment of insight, um, that's only going to happen when they're free to examine themselves and you've got to make them feel comfortable that you're along for the ride with them. And so it does become intimate and you're hearing someone's secrets, you know, and, and they're trusting you with them and you are making yourself vulnerable. It can be a very emotional, uh, you know, 45 minute session. Um, you know, we don't have a, a couch and a, you know, box of tissues all the time, but um, it, it's, it's dramatic uh, to me. And I'm, I guess I'm extending the intimacy metaphor a little bit, but I, you know, I've had a, couple of times where I'm coaching someone, I might be coaching a woman and somewhere in the middle of it, she screams, Oh my God, like I never realizes it. And I'm thinking of, I can make a woman scream, Oh my God, and not get in trouble for it. I've done pretty well that day. Um, But so, so it is intimate. It's very close. I can't picture doing it in a cookie cutter way because, um, um, because I I don't think it could be particularly valuable. I have an opinion about this. I'm going to see if I'm right or wrong. The big three, are there Mm -hmm. three issues, three problems, three points of just frustration that you encounter over and over and over again? Maybe it's two, Uh, maybe it's the big one, but are there those three items that you just, you, they're, they're always there. They're always present in every CEO. It, what are those three? A lot of it's about relationships. How do I work better with my peers? How do I work better with my board? How do I work better with the people who report to me? What do I do because I have to let go of someone who's been loyal to me for 40 years? Um, so it, it, is, it is more often intersection of emotion and business problem. Um, and that's where people get hung up because the emotion creates such a 
chamber of noise in your head that you might not even recognize, but you find it becomes very difficult to navigate to your rational decision-making. I would also say that a big feature, and another one of the big three uh, in my notes when you said you were asking me this, was in these times. In these times right now is a particularly um, potent challenge. How do I... Um, how do I lead a group when I don't know where we're going ourselves? How do I prioritize that? How do I deliver bad news honestly and not lose my team? How do I, um, now those are kind of the, the uh, seemingly impossible choices that, um, and again, as a coach, I'm not necessarily going to be the expert on those problems. But what I can do is help the person to understand what's the impact of the emotions that he or she is dealing with uh, and figure out how to identify that and then, and then, you know, honor that, but then still get to the goal without the whole thing be just being just a confusing, paralyzing mess. And paralysis is probably the biggest uh, um, problem to overcome. And I'm assuming it's very easy for these C-suite executives, these leaders, to be able to confide in, in you because you're an outsider. Uh, mm-hmm. There's not that risk of sharing this with someone else internally, and then they potentially share that content with somebody else. That's right. That's, and that's pretty theoretically true. Um, but it, it's also, um, again, on the emotional side, they have to understand that I'm not judging them. Um, that I, I am not here with, you know, the bright light and that they're, you know, in, in down in the, in the, in the dirt. Uh, I'm going to just try one little story here that when I started coaching, one of the things that I was passionate about was, um, the fact that I wanted to show that you can be a different kind of persona, um, than maybe the, typical persona for a CEO or general manager, managing director, whatever. And that it was important to know that nice guys don't have to finish last. And uh, I thought that was a really important message. Um, And I thought the other half of my message was to tap into who you are authentically, to be authentic, to lead as an authentic person. And I was coaching someone and she was telling me, yeah, I am that typical person. I am that hard driving, um, uh, you know, bottom line, very competitive uh, enemy killer. Um, so are you saying because of this nice guy thing that I can't be successful with that? And I was, I was thrown uh, because that's not the right message. And the right message is no, you've got to take who you are, your values, and be authentic and lead like that. But I realized that I had this rainbowy type of imagery that everyone really wishes they didn't have to be that. And I, I could coach them into being themselves authentically as long as that was like me. And that took me some time to work past. And that's part of what I'm saying about or, or answering your question uh, about creating a safe space. If I'm going to judge this person because, you know, they are completely bottom line oriented and less empathetic, 
um, then I'm of no use to that person. Um, and, and so that's part of creating the safe space is you are who you are. I respect and honor who you are. Um, now let's figure out how to make you more effective using those tools because it's obviously, um, I mean, that's the whole idea of diversity is that you get a mix of personalities, a mix of strengths. Um, and if everyone can maximize their results with their own tools, who am I to say, um, you know, competitiveness, uh, um, bottom line orientation isn't right. Obviously, in the end, it's, it's necessary and to have that balance is important. Steve, I started my practice in 2001. I had never heard of executive coaching or small business mm-hmm. coaching back then. Uh, move the clock forward to 2005. I still don't know if we had heard a lot about business coaching back then. So today it's like everyone has probably heard of an executive coach or business coaching. There are a lot of organizations where you can uh, take an exam or just, just sign up. Uh, Is coaching overrated today? (laughs) No, I don't think it's overrated. I think that, um, I think it is, it may be misunderstood. Uh, and, um, that's a good way to put it. I, I think that, that, and yeah, you say everyone knows about it now, but I think that a lot of people wouldn't know the difference between mentoring and coaching. And, and, you know, technically if you're a coach and you're certified by the international coach federation, they're very different. Um, so I, I think that, uh, I think it's still growing and gaining in its legitimacy and its clarity as to what the, the, the profession or the practice uh, is all about. And it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. It's not about me being an expert and, and the person that has uh, retained me being a neophyte. It's about um, me having the, the responsibility to help them find their answers rather than to get answers from me. I've already learned a little bit about your diagnostics, your discovery process. It Mm -hmm. starts with, you know, what do you want? What are your objectives? Uh, Once you go through that discovery process, what did your process look like uh, going forward? So we got the before, before coaching, then there's the during coaching. What are you doing during that time period, which may be, is it a year? Is it six months? Is it indefinite? Most, most uh, um, engagements uh, start at six months. Some of them after six months, you know, they, you may feel that you're done or you may feel that you're not done or you may feel it's not working and have bailed out. But um, six months is, is a pretty typical um, standard for an initial coaching engagement. Um, and so at the start of it, the first part is to is to agree on a goal, and this is, that's sometimes tricky, and it sometimes takes uh, a while, and it depends how much appetite the client has for coaching. Sometimes a companies can say, "I think this guy needs a coach," and put him into coaching. And you sit down and say, "What do you want to work on?" And say, "Nothing, I'm fine," you know, and then it's difficult to go anywhere from there. So you you have to dig a little bit to establish a goal. And again, it's got to come from the client because if I tell him what he needs, then 
he can blow me off because it's not important. If he tells me what he needs, then it's more likely to be um, um, sustainable. So you start with that overall goal uh, that you agree on. You may write it down or whatever, but you certainly have an agreement that this is what we're working on. And then what I like to do is in each session, kind of take current events uh, from their life and look at their this week's challenges or this whatever current challenge, which may take more than one session. But look at that through the lens of the overall goal. I want to learn to be more open. I want to learn to be more uh, engaging. I want to learn to be whatever it is, more businesslike. Um, and then to look at the challenges that they're having in each session. So then in each session, we set a goal for the session. Again, you can guess it by now, driven by the, by the uh, person being coached. And we set off on that with a, you know, a series of questions. And like I said, the questions aren't cookie cutter, but it might start with why is this important to you? Or why is this important right now? And that sometimes is a harder question than you would imagine. Um, we go through, it's my job to be curious. It's my job to be dogged and make sure I'm really getting an answer. Um, you know, and there's, there's techniques in it. You know, letting the, the silence work for you. When you ask a question, the other person stops and it's just quiet in the room. Um, it's the most valuable moment. You know, you're about to hit pay dirt if you have the discipline to keep your mouth shut until the, the other person speaks because they're working on it and they're digging down more deeply. So it's to go through that, listen well, and eventually drive towards those aha moments that that um, that you hope uh, occur. Anytime I hear about the concept of an executive coach, I'm thinking of here's the coach, here's the CEO. It's always mm-hmm. the CEO. Is there ever a case where the CFO may say, now, wait a minute, I want an executive coach too. Would that process be any different for you, Steve? Not really. Not really. I mean, the issues that might come up uh, might be, you know, different business challenges mm-hmm. along the way. Um, but um, you're right. It's not a, a different um process might be a different personality type and it might be you know this is a stereotype that doesn't always hold and i'm sure that your listeners know this that you can be an extroverted cfo and still be a cfo you don't have to be uh you know a a green eye shade guy to be a a cfo um so uh, well i'll say what i said before cfos are people too and they come in uh in all types um and so, yeah, the process is very much the same for CFOs. And I have coached people in the financial world and um, find them to be really as varied as, as people in any other um, uh, discipline. How does a CEO, and since we just mentioned a CFO, yeah. how would they go about picking a coach? Because I'm assuming, unless you've been referred to someone, mm-hmm. someone may be looking at more than one coach. What are the questions they should be asking? Again, how do they go about finding the right person like you to work with them? It's it's different, and they usually have you know a panel or you know several coaches that they'll interview. Um, 
And I really think it is a combination of what relevant experience do you have? And I think that would be more at have you coached at this level than have you coached in this industry? You know, again, if I'm coaching someone in the apparel industry, it's not because I know anything about the apparel industry. Uh, so I, I think that's kind of a, you know, a, a key to a door is that you've done something similar and you have good references. But I, I think it is so much about the interview. Have I demonstrated to them or do they perceive that I'm interested in them, that they can picture themselves, you know, talking to me uh, repeatedly and, and have some sort of chemistry um, and that you do the work that you can do up front to even to establish that modicum of trust. Uh, because I think if, you know, you, you go to the, the Maya Angelou quote, which I'll probably misquote here, but people forget what you said and people forget what you did, but people will always remember how you made them feel. Right. Uh, and I think that is very important from the first interaction to the last. I always ask guests, and I cannot wait to see your short list. You're smiling. What are some of your favorite books? And and by the way, to make this question easier, it can be books that have had a big influence in your career, or it could be books that you refer or, or recommend, excuse me. Or it could be just books that that have come to mind, maybe a little bit of recency bias. So yeah. I'll just leave it at that. So some of your favorite reads. I've been I've been reading uh, books about leadership recently. Um, I'm not surprised. I <laughs> I read a couple of books uh, by General Stanley McChrystal, uh, who I had the privilege of of introducing on a panel one time. Um, all-time books, the books that have given me the most pleasure. I've spent a couple of decades going through all of John Updike's novels and short stories. And I, there was no greater pleasure to me. And when, when he died, I thought, what do I do now? It was, um, um, and I guess my favorite of his books, he had the rabbit run and rabbit redux, rabbit at rest. They had this tetralogy and the last one, uh, yeah, I guess I skipped Rabbit is Rich. As the Rabbit at Rest was such a powerful book um, about this this guy near the end of his life, and he was, he was kind of summing up and tying together the kind of adventures of his uh, somewhat failed life um, over the four books that had gone on. But he was painted as such a three dimensional character, and. As the book's going on, you can see he's leading to a heart attack. I was at a book reading one time, and I got to meet John Updike for just a second. I brought my book for him to autograph. And I thought, what do I say to this guy? I'm your biggest fan. How stupid is that? You know, what can I say to him? So I said to him, I handed him my copy of Rabbit at Rest. I said, you know, this book was so vivid. I had chest pains the whole time I was reading it, which was true. And he said to me, you know, I had chest pains the whole time I was writing it. Oh, my goodness. It was such a perfect, wonderful moment. So, um, Two kindred spirits. Yeah. But it, 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 things that reach me in, in, in books 
as well as in movies, plays, whatever, is where you something that just reaches you honestly and reaches you and touches that nonverbal part of your brain. I'm pointing to my heart as I say brain, but you know what I mean. Uh, and it just reaches you with authenticity and it blows me away. And that's what to me was so wonderful about his books. You mentioned Stanley McChrystal, his TED yeah. talk. So let's say you've been asked to do a TEDx talk. Um, that would be at a local school, local university, mm-hmm. that type of a, a venue. It's going to be a shortened speech, maybe nine minutes, roughly. What's going to be your talk? Um, I've been really uh, kind of preoccupied during the corona pandemic about leadership in crisis. And the kind of bottom line is, well, leadership is leadership and you just got to do what leaders do. But the special challenges that come out of that, um, and one thing that I've been really focused on that I think is probably what I would talk about is purpose, is identifying as a leader, identifying purpose in the work you do. And it can be just the purpose that I'm doing a new software tool that's going to make life better for the people who are in my uh, um, you know, my finance department, or it could be something better for my customers or whatever. But if you can lead and get your team engaged around a sense of meaning that they um, can share with you, even if it's remotely and if it's on Zoom and all of this stuff, all the things that make it hard There's a real opportunity, I think, to make purposeful work the island of sanity in a world that otherwise seems so unbearably out of control each day. Uh, And I don't have to go through the litany of what it makes it feel like that. Um, And I think it's a real opportunity for leaders to distinguish themselves. And I like to think of it as being able to look back on this time with how proud you are of what you did during the pandemic. Even if you're not the person who came up with the vaccine or, or whatever, um, but something that you did um, that was meaningful. So I would talk about that as an opportunity for leaders. I think that's what my talk would be. Steve, we'll have this in the show notes. Where can we learn more about you and your practice? Um, you can go to my website, which is Better Self Leadership. I'm sorry. That's right. Better self leadership, uh, dot com. Um, and that has some of my blog posts and my background talks a little bit about the kind of coaching we do and so on. Uh, and then that links to the international coach federation, which is where my accreditation comes from. And that can, um, provide a little more background into the coaching profession uh, itself. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to your hosts, the no-name CFOs, Mark and Bruce. Great, great guy. I really like Steve's the kind of guy to where if he lived in Columbia, Missouri, I'd be, it's like, Steve, let, 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 let's, let's go do coffee. Let's go do lunch. Just, just a great, great guy. Really enjoyed our conversation. So there is one, there's one topic 
we didn't bring up. We had a lot of things we wanted to hit. I wanted to hit because I was just naturally curious. You, you figure that out since we've known each other for the last five or six years, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just, absolutely. Just, just a little bit. So here's here's the question I have for you, Bruce. Okay. Is executive coaching over-prescribed or under-prescribed? I think that's a good question. What's your opinion on that? I would say it's I would say it's under prescribed just because I don't <clears throat> I don't hear it prescribed a whole lot. And also I would say when it is prescribed, it's probably prescribed for the wrong reasons. There. I think uh, you know, I, I think that's a it's a I think executive coaching is an option when you really want to continue to build. But my guess is that the the most the my guess is the people who would absolutely get the most out of executive coaching maybe present themselves in a way that doesn't that doesn't um, that doesn't cause somebody to say, "Hey, they need some coaching." You know, I, I think it's it's almost it it executive coaching sometimes I think gets gets you know gets talked about or prescribed for somebody who's not succeeding versus somebody who's succeeding but would benefit from from you know some additional tool sets or would benefit from some feedback in a lot of cases i I think it's also you know somebody needs somebody needs a blueprint for how to work um and 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 i i think that's selling coaching short you know a, a blueprint is just is is very simple whereas you need somebody to observe what's going on and give um you know give feed give nuanced feedback to um to somebody who's willing to take it and willing to do something with it. Bruce, you're on monitor number four, and I think I have my monitor tilted to where you can see monitor number six, where I got some of my, you're re, you're either reading my mind or reading some of my notes. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so you're, you're nailing this, at least based on where I, I was, where my thinking is, because when should we be coached? And again, this applies this applies, again, this is not for CEOs and presidents. This is for all of us who want to be continually growing. Now, stop me if you disagree, but I think coaching is for that person who has high potential. So this can be a controller. Uh, it can be a, a, a mid-level marketing manager, a sales manager of some type, or it can even, it can even just be uh, a key blocker and tackler who has that that capability. So that, that'd right. be one type of... Uh, coaching, uh, one reason, high potential. How about a big transition? Sure. So do, have you been through some major transitions where it might've helped having some coaching above and beyond what you were getting uh, internally? Yeah. Um, I mean, several times throughout the career, either whether it was early on and going from an individual contributor role to a people leader um, role going from a, a manager to a director, you know, something that's you know, going from a role where you're kind of expected to still really be a productive doer as well as a leader, moving more to, you know, you know being a mentor and coaching, you know, coaching up your team. Um, so, and, and, and also going in, you know, from different industries <clears throat> as well, you know, spending a, lo- a long time in retail, um, Probably one of the one of the ones I would have needed the most, but didn't have, was moving from um, 
was moving from May department stores to Macy's because the two cultures and the two and the two businesses were run in a in a distinctly different way, and that was something that I didn't um, that I didn't pick up on right away. And to have had and and I had always had great mentors, but it happened organically. And it would have been nice to have had some a more intentional um, type of a coach and mentor. Um, flipping over to the uh, flipping over to a new company with a new culture that on the surface looked like more of the same, but in reality was vastly different. In the early nineties, KPMG, where I worked uh, senior managers, managers called it, they call training uh, finishing or charm school. And I think that's a term you could use for yeah. also another reason for coaching is well, finishing school, charm school. And right. I, I'm thinking of that bowl uh, in, in a china cabinet. Uh, it, it's like we need th- this person's rough around the edges, <laughs> and so that could be a reason. Well, isn't that isn't that crazy, Toad? Though too that uh, a lot of times that's that particular hard charging attitude that gets you promoted to a different level then doesn't play at that next level because then it it's it, that hard charging attitude can become um you know unintentionally become abusive because you don't you know you don't realize when you're a manager or or a you know a middle at the middle level um how much and, and I hear I say this a lot these days the words matter and how you how you approach things becomes more important at a senior level because what was you know what can what can be taken as joking or taken as you know um, I'll, I'll just you know taken one way when it comes from somebody with a C in front of their title, it can put somebody in an entirely different mindset and have an entirely different effect, and in some ways can be you know can be a very abusive type of thing. So you know without going down that rabbit hole, I think to have somebody. To, to say, you know, this is, you know, let's, you know, be a little bit more, um, you know, add a little bit of polish and sophistication to the approach. Well, good conversation. Again, check out Steve Mendelson over at betterselfleadership.com. We'll have the links in the show notes, some content there. And Bruce, we'll have to talk about our experiences with our executive coaches uh, very soon. Yes. Yeah, we should, uh, we should do that. And that is your cue to take us home. Yep. All right. <laughs> Mark, always enjoy our time together. Everybody out there, be safe, be well, please practice love and empathy. And we'll talk again soon.